If you are interested in simplifying your life and your business, have you thought about automating things? Welcome to Outside the Box with Elsa. Your host is Elsa Palmer Oden. There are many tools that you can use in business and personal automation, including virtual assistants. It's time to take back your time and management. Now, here's your host, Elsa Palmer Oden. Welcome to Outside the Box. I'm your host, Elsa Palmer Oden. I have a great show planned for you tonight. If you have any questions you would like to ask during the show, you can call in to 866-472-5788 or send an email to Elsa at ElsaOutsideTheBox.com. Today, I'm going to focus more on September 11th, a date we will never forget in history. In, on September 11th, 2012, just nine years ago, our U.S. consulate in Benghazi was attacked and burned down, killing four Americans, including our U.S. Ambassador, Ambassador Christopher Stevens, which was indeed a sad day. However, on 2000, in 2001, 20 years ago, there was an unprecedented and highly coordinated terrorist attack on our homeland. They hijacked four U.S. passenger airplanes, two were flown into the World Trade Center towers in New York City, and one into the Pentagon, killing thousands of people. The fourth airplane was headed towards Washington, presumed to strike the White House or possibly even the Capitol. This airplane crashed around 100 miles away in Pennsylvania just after the passengers stormed the cockpit and overtook the hijackers. This tragic day will be our focus for tonight's show. Now, 20 years ago, most of us went to bed thinking nothing about how our lives could literally change overnight. On the morning of September 11th, 2001, I had actually dropped my kids off at school, came home, turned on the news. As I was doing stuff around the house, I heard the report of the first tower being hit by an airplane. This caught my attention rather quickly, and I turned to watch the news report. I then watched as the second plane crashed into the other tower. My heart instantly broke for the people we all knew didn't make it or were trapped. Like everyone else, I had no idea what that it was going to get worse. Most of us only watched things unravel on TV. The guests I have joining us tonight were there and have experienced the tragic events of that day and fortunately survived to tell their story. I have Nadine Jeffroy, who was in New York City across from the World Trade Center Towers, Raymond Jeffroy, who was at the Pentagon, and Kari Fair, who was at the first responder in New York City. So welcome, Nadine, Raymond, and Kari. I'm happy to have you guys on here tonight for this special episode, remembering the day that changed us all. So, Thank you, Elsa. Uh, Thank you. And I think this is going to be really great for people to hear what you guys actually saw and heard that day. So let's start with you, Nadine. You were in New York City when the first plane hit at about 8.46 a.m. Explain how the morning started for you and what you saw and experienced. Certainly. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, Well, September 11th was a Tuesday. And it started off like any other Tuesday um, of my life at that time. Um, I left for work 
I um, kissed my sleeping 18-month-old child, and I said goodbye to my mother and husband. My mother watched my daughter at that time, and I took the train into the city. Um, when I would get off the train in Hoboken, I would take the ferry across. And as I took the ferry across, I, I stood outside because it was a beautiful day, and something really struck me that day. I had never seen the sky so blue and so beautiful and so perfect. And as I close my eyes now, I can picture looking at the towers and just how perfectly serene and beautiful the city was. And it was absolutely spectacular. When I arrived, I went um, to my, my cubicle in um, one World Financial Center in the, on the seventh floor. And being that it was a Monday, I happened to be on the phone talking to my brother-in-law about Monday night football the night before and the football pool and how everybody did. Um, all of a sudden, I heard a very loud boom, a loud crash. And I stood up and there was a window that I could see and I just saw gray debris coming down. It was just like a snow of debris coming down. And I, I said, Jim, I have to go, something bad happened. And I hung up on him and I stood up and very loudly, I said to all the people who I worked with and who worked for me, I'm like, let's get out of here. I don't know what's happening. So I grabbed a picture of my daughter um, that I had just taken the day before. And I grabbed my, my coworkers and we left and we walked down the steps. We, we wanted to go on the elevator. We walked down the steps and then I remembered uh, the woman, one a woman who worked with me at the time was about eight and a half months pregnant. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just have to get to Claire. So we got downstairs and we all stood there and we looked up at the towers and we looked all the way up to the 105th floor and you could see the diagonal view of where the plane went in. And from down there, it looked like a small plane. It didn't look like a big plane. And, but I had never seen more smoke coming out the sides of the building. It was just, it was a sight like I had never seen. Um, again, thinking it was a small plane and having the innocent mind of pre-September 11th, we all thought to ourselves, oh my gosh, a small plane crashed into the Trade Center. How horrible. You know, we'll stand outside for a while and, you know, then we'll go back to work and it'll just be a regular day. And as we're sitting there trying to ponder, you know, like hearing somebody say, oh, I was just on the phone with so-and-so and the line went dead, or I was just talking to somebody up at Counter Fitzgerald, or I was just talking to so-and-so, we saw the backside of the second plane blow out the back of number two. And that's when we realized we had to, we had to get out of there. We had to, we couldn't stand where we were anymore. So I grabbed Claire's hand. Claire was the eight-month-old, eight-month pregnant woman who worked for me, and we ran uptown. Um, and we, we just kept going for a little while and we stopped at like, a, there was a gym. There were actually people still working out in the gym and the TV was on and we looked in there and still having the innocent mind, my little brain thought, oh my gosh, and all of the smoke, another little plane hit the other building. And somebody said, no, this is terrorism. You have to get out, get out of the city, get out as fast as you can. So again, I grabbed Claire and we went to the river. We went back to the river and then back to the ferry where we started from. And we got on the ferry and we stood up on the second, on the dock again, the same dock that I was, or the deck that I was just on a couple hours before going back. And we, I had never seen more smoke, more fire, 
Um, unfortunately, I did see a person or two. Well, I didn't realize at the time that it was a person or two, but there was a shape, like weird shapes coming out of the building of people as they jumped out. And it was just horrifying, absolutely horrifying. And at the time, we were talking back and forth about how they were going to fix these buildings. How, how is this, what, how is this going to transpire? Because nobody ever thought the buildings were going to fall. Again, looking back at how naive we were, we're like, well, they'll fix, you know, the one building and then the other. And then we got to Hoboken and um, all cell service was dead. Um, so I went out to use the payphone like everybody else. And I looked across the river and that's when Tower 2 fell. And that's when I knew, I bought, that's when I knew nothing was going to be the same again. And I got on the train, I took Claire, I got on the train and we sat there. And then we heard stories come in about the Pentagon. And then we heard different things, you know, different rumors coming in about, you know, all all air traffic was going to get shut and this was going to happen and that was going to happen. And Claire and I held on to each other and we just hoped that we would make it home in time because then at that point, my innocent mind switched to believing that the world was going to end. I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going on. So we held on to each other until we got home to my house. And I brought her home and I, when I arrived, my whole family um, was there. My brother-in-law who I was on the phone with sped to my house. My husband came home and my mother and daughter and my best friend at the time, Trish, they were all there and we just held each other and we just cried and cried and cried. And that's, you know, that, that day, everything in our whole lives changed. And it was just, it was, completely surreal. It was completely surreal. You put tears to my eyes there. Yeah. But you know, out of that did come a blessing because two days later, unbeknownst to me at the time, I found out I was pregnant and my daughter's name is Grace. And the reason we named her Grace is because she's a gift from God. And I believe she's the angel that got me out of the city that day and protected me and protected Claire and her unborn baby, who's also going to be 19 this year as well. That's incredible. I, I bet the images of that day just kind of are burnt into your memory. A hundred percent. I told that with my eyes closed and I could just picture it step by step and inch by inch so vividly and so clearly against that bright blue sky, the amount of smoke and the holes in the building. And then later on, what we found, what we came to know were building people jumping out of the buildings to just get away from the torture of it all. And just, Which is, it's so sad. Yeah. So you saw, or you were there for the first two planes and yes. got to unfortunately witness that yes so let's um then go to kari you were a first responder at the new york city so explain what you dealt with on that day uh well actually on september 11th um i actually wasn't going into work right away i had a really bad headache and I had the news on and I saw, you know, that the first tower had or the first plane that hit the tower. And my father worked um, at the South 
tower. And I immediately tried calling him, no answer. I called my sister. She tried calling him, called my brother. We were all trying to call him, calling my mother. She was actually asleep at the time. Um, and uh, I finally got a hold of my mother. Uh, just about the second plane hit the, the other tower. And my mother was like, well, I think he said something about maybe going to a golf outing today. So we didn't know if my father had actually gone into the city or had actually had gone golfing. And uh, I went over to her house. And um, when I drive to her house, I kind of get up on a hillside that actually has a beautiful view of the New York City skyline. And you could just see just the smoke over lower Manhattan there. And um, I waited at my mom's house until we heard from my father who actually finally had indeed gone golfing. And so once it was okay, I responded down to our squad building, the Summit First Aid Squad, um, because they had hundreds of people coming in from trains from the city, covered in dust and debris. And we were setting up like a decon station. We were trying to help out anyone who was injured. Um, most people didn't really want to do anything other than just go home to their families. And I guess rightly so. Um, we were all kind of, I, I, I mean, I've never seen anything like it when these people get off the train, just covered. Everybody was the same color at that point. And it was just, um, a, a, you've never seen before, you know, you can't explain it. And, um, you know, we still had to provide 911 calls in the town. Uh, we had a, a member who worked for Euro Brokers in the towers and nobody had heard from him. So at our building, we had an, a couple people who were doing 911 calls and a couple other people who were finding out all the hospitals in the area. Uh, we were calling up to see if we, they had our member Ian Thompson there trying to help his family locate him. Um, personally, our friend's um, wife for Aon uh, up in the highest floors up there in the one tower, I forget which one it was. And, you know, my father at home then was making phone calls to try to find um, her if the, she had gone to any hospitals. It was just very surreal. We sent an ambulance down to Liberty State Park because they thought people were going to evacuate by boats back over. And there were some that came, but not as many as they thought. We had members then who just actually got on an empty boat and went back into the city and were setting up like a temporary morgue, you know, if they had found anybody. And, you know, we come to realize that there was really not much of a morgue to set up or no need for it. And um, on September um, 13th, we had a request to send an ambulance down into Ground Zero. I immediately volunteered. Not sure why, but I felt like I needed to go. And, um, you know, we all met in front of the Holland Tunnel. We had a pol police escort through the tunnel and uh, very surreal. You know, you're used to traffic and uh, there was nothing, just emergency lights going through the tunnel. It was kind of deafening how quiet it was. And when we came out of the tunnel, there was hundreds of people there with 
posters and cheering us on. Thank you for coming. And we haven't done anything. Um, it just moved myself and my p partners that I was, was with to tears. Um, we went to Chelsea Pier. We staged there till we got our assignment and uh, drove down to Vessie Street. And I remember, you know, I kept looking right, kept looking right during all the blocks. And I thought, oh my God, this is so much bigger in person than it is on television. You know, you couldn't imagine it. We parked the ambulance, we kind of walked up to the pile and I remember just dropping to my knees saying, oh my God. But at the same time, I was like, I can't believe like maybe only 3000 people perish when you see the magnitude of the space and know what's usually in those buildings at that time, that it could have been so much worse. Um, and we worked all night there helping um, other first responders, helping on the pile, um, just sites that, you know, when you see crushed, you know, fire trucks under the debris, that just, it makes no sense. And I think the biggest thing for me was kind of walking down the street and everything was a dust color. Occasionally you'd see a shoe. Uh, we saw a stapler. Um, and then one of the trees in town just had a little purple flower coming out, but everything else was all dusty. And we walked down the, the street and there was a, like a little donut shop and the donuts were still in the window or in the case, all covered. And you saw the newsstands, you know, there's little newsstands on the corner there where you could put the money in and get a newspaper with the paper September 11th on it. It's kind of like everything stopped then. And that's kind of what it felt like. I mean, it just, you didn't have a sense of one day after another. It was just kind of one very long day for a while. Um, just very, very powerful. So basically time stood still. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, the biggest thing was, like I said, you, there was really no debris. I mean, there was debris that the buildings fell, but it was just dust, you know what I mean? And, you know, you saw a lot of paper and business cards and, and stuff around a lot of paper but really nothing else and it really made no sense to me gosh you know? such a sad day at least your father was okay thank god my mother says you know ever since that day he could go golfing anytime he wanted and she would never say anything so um, <laughs> you know and it was funny about a week later there was a phone call to the house trying to find out if my father was a survivor or not because the woman in the middle of Brooklyn found his business card in her backyard and wanted to know if we wanted it. Wow. It traveled a good distance. Absolutely. Which was pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, let's, um, hear from Raymond now on what he saw that day and experienced from the Pentagon 
when he first heard the planes crash, that the, a plane crashed into the towers. Okay. Can you hear me now? I, I can hear you. Great. Great. So listen, Elsa, I'd like to set the stage a little bit about uh, why I was in the Pentagon that particular day. Uh, number one, um, if you all recall, we had a number of bombings at embassies in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam. And then we also had a, a barracks bombing in Saudi Arabia in 1996 in Jeddah uh, and Riyadh, uh, which required the Department of Defense to look at how they were going to beef up their force protection measures. So the Pentagon went through a major renovation and they started with, it's a five-sided building. So they started with the, the, uh, the part of the building that faced the West or faced Arlington Cemetery, if your listeners are familiar with the Pentagon. And uh, that, that particular portion of the Pentagon was done, was finished in April of 2001. And my office and my department uh, moved from the Navy Annex up the road next to Arlington Cemetery down to the Pentagon uh, at that particular time. So uh, on September 11th, I was in the Pentagon uh, in my new office, which had basically the best uh, force protection measures identifiable at that particular time. Uh, if there was an attack on the building, it would withstand you know, a blast of uh, an IED, for example, or a car bomb, for example. No one ever thought about an airplane. But even so, it was designed at, at the best force protection standards at that time. So that beautiful day, as Nadine had mentioned as well, it's a beautiful blue sky. We all went to work uh, uh, with nothing in mind other than to do what we were going to do uh, for our schedule. And my schedule that day, uh, and for the, those who are listening, my, my job was I, was I was the Assistant Deputy Commandant of the Marine Corps. I was responsible for all protection of our bases and stations, the Marines and guarded embassies worldwide, anything to do with uh, anti-terrorism measures. And uh, I was preparing a brief. We were going to have a general officer symposium about two weeks after 9-11. We bring all our general officers in once a year, and I was going to update them on our um, anti-terrorism and force protection measures that we had taken since the USS Cole was bombed the October before. So, in a, so I was in my boss's office, not my own office. Uh, Lieutenant General Buck Bedard, uh, now uh, retired Lieutenant General Rich Natansky, retired Major General Gordon Nash, myself, and a Lieutenant Colonel who was the EA or Executive Assistant by the name of Frank McKenzie. And uh, for those listeners that have been watching the news, Frank McKenzie is now a four-star general and was in charge was in charge of Central Command and what happened in Afghanistan. That's just some context there. So I was briefing uh, our, our folks, the generals and, and myself, about what we were going to talk about about uh, to the general officers. And that's about the time that uh, the first plane hit the Pentagon, uh, hit the World Trade Center. And again, like Nadine had said, we and most everybody reported it was an accident. It was something that we didn't expect to happen. And uh, we continued to talk about it. And uh, I had mentioned just in passing about uh, – my mother's one of my mother's friends in 19, I think it was 1948 when a plane hit the Empire State Building and it killed uh, one of my mother's friends and she named my sister Maureen after her. And I was thinking I was telling him about how a plane hit the world had hit the Empire State Building and it could be something similar. But that was bad weather at that point in time. But anyway, we continued to talk. And then I said to uh, the other folks in the, in the conference room, I said, hey, let me call downstairs to. 
my office since we are monitoring what's going on worldwide to see if we have any indications of anything else. So I walked out of the conference room and I get on the phone. And as I'm on the phone, I'm looking at the TV screen. And then I see the second plane hit uh, the World Trade Center. So then I knew we were at war. And we walked back, I walked back into the, into the conference room and obviously said, okay, this is what happened. We're at war. And we, then our mind clicked over to what do we have to do to protect all the men and women that are in the Marine Corps, the basing stations, the dependents, and all those things that we would normally do. So we set some things in motion uh, automatically to set conditions for closing down those bases and stuff like that. Now, at the same time, what's going on in my own office is I have a, a deputy. His name is Steve Reese. He was from Chatham, New Jersey. He was a reserve lieutenant colonel uh, in the Marine Corps, and then he became he was a cop in Chatham, and I hired him as my deputy. And uh, he's supposed to be in the Navy Command Center at 9 o'clock in the morning or 9.30 in the morning. And unbeknownst to me, because I was in the other room, I was in my boss's office, and uh, someone brought donuts into the office. And you know the old story about cops and donuts. Well, Steve says, well, let me have a donut, and I'll, I'll see those guys later. I don't have to be at the meeting. It's no big deal, so on and so forth. So circle back to my to my where I am in the conference room. So we're sitting there, and, and someone after 9.30 or 9.45 or something like that, Frank McKenzie, now General McKenzie, he comes running into the room at the conference room and said, there's a plane headed for the Pentagon. And we're looking around and say, oh, a plane had, a plane's headed for the Pentagon. 30 seconds later, we're, uh, the, the plane hits. We're about 600 feet away from the impact, and it's to the left of where the impact was. We land, you know, desks flew, chairs flew, we all flew on the ground. And the next thing we, do, we did, we picked ourselves up and we all ran. We ran to where our men and women were to find out where they were and we and just find out if they were okay. And unfortunately, we couldn't get to our offices because obviously um, where my office was was immediately behind the impact of where the airplane was, but it was on the A-ring. The impact came in from the E-ring and went all the way to the sea. So my office was basically inundated with smoke and fire. And the, and the uh, storm doors, the fire doors closed. So I tried to work my way into in if everybody's from the Pentagon inside the Pentagon there's like a five acre open area it used to be called Ground Zero for nuclear attacks and so on. the Russians used to target it I worked my way down into the middle of the of the five acre area and all I could see are people coming out some on fire some you know bleeding uh, smoke inhalation you you name it it was it was a mess and and I was trying to get back to my I couldn't get back to my office. It took me over an hour to extricate myself from the Pentagon to where I knew if something had happened in the Pentagon, we all knew where we had to go. So our, my office would have to go to the South parking lot. So I worked my way to the South parking lot, and then we get there, and then we take muster. Okay, Raymond, to, we're going to yeah. have to take a quick break. Um, and okay. then let's continue the story as soon as we come back. Uh, first, yeah. I do want to take a moment just to honor the souls that were lost on September 11th from the Benghazi attack as well and the recent uh, Afghanistan attack. We'll be right back. 
Entrepreneurs and business owners need reliable, good assistance without the time-consuming stress that comes with searching for, hiring, and training someone. That's where U.S. Virtual Assistant and REIAssistant.com comes in. Their outstanding U.S.-based virtual assistants are trained, have strong skills, experience, and are reliable. They make it easy to work with a rock star virtual assistant so you can reclaim time to do what you need to do and grow your business. They carefully pair you with an experienced virtual assistant who can take care of pretty much any task that doesn't require their in-person presence. From inbound calls to outbound calls to property management and from marketing to websites, they have your small business needs covered. Hiring a virtual assistant is easier than hiring and training an assistant yourself. Best part? It's also cost-effective, saving you up to 85% compared to hiring your own in-house or virtual assistant. Stop doing everything yourself and get your time back by hiring a VA from usvirtualassistant.com. Visit us or call today, 855-2-GET-A-VA. Looking to buy or sell your piece of Southwest Florida paradise? Make your choice a logical one with Logical Choice Realty Group. Sell it faster for more money and less stress. They'll get your home sold and closed. Go to LogicalChoiceRealtyGroup.com and start packing today. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Outside the Box with Elsa. To reach the live show, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to elsa at elsaoutsidethebox.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. Now, we're going to continue with Raymond from the Pentagon side of everything that happened that day. Okay. So uh, as I, as I mentioned before we took the break, um, I tried to, uh, to get to our South parking lot where my, my folks that work for me, my office staff uh, would have rallied. We got there and we took a nose count and we're missing two people. And of course the first reaction is, okay, what happened? Did we, did they get left behind? Cause my office was, uh, uh, engulfed in fire. And uh, I come to find out there were two women and they just, they were scared. They were just literally scared. And they just decided to take off and they went to a hotel and they checked into a hotel. They lived in DC, but they checked in a hotel in Crystal City in Virginia, in Arlington there. And they just called uh, one of our cell phones and said, we're here, we're not leaving. And we just went to the liquor store and that's where we're staying. The true story. And I said, I said, okay, that's fine. They're taken care of. And I mentioned earlier about Steve Reese, my deputy that uh, ate the donut. Well, um, when the plane hit, and I said, I was about 600 feet to the left, but the plane hit directly on the E-ring and directly into the Navy command center, which is where Steve was supposed to be at a meeting. And if he hadn't eaten that donut that morning, and not, and if he had gone down to the Navy command center, he would have been dead today. Uh, friends of ours died, and of course he lives with the fact that he wasn't there, and he he escaped that. But it's something that a real thing that happened. We lost some great friends uh, from the Navy that were in that command center. So we're at the South Park a lot first, and 
first thing we do then is we get our folks together and there's nothing we can do at the Pentagon. So we move up, we walk up to the Navy Annex, which is about a quarter of a mile up the road adjacent to Arlington Cemetery where we had our Navy Command, our Marine Corps Command Center. And we moved back into the Navy Annex where we had left in April. And we started calling the bases and stations, like I mentioned earlier, about making sure that they had taken their measures and so on and so forth. And we did that all day. We looked at all the things we had to do, and it was just like an automatic checklist. And I'll just give you one one, uh, vignette a little bit. Uh, I think it was September 9th. I had put a budget request in for $140 million dollars for some anti-terrorism protection equipment, things that we needed within the Marine Corps. And of course, because this is at the end of the fiscal year in the, in the government, you try to spend money at the end of the fiscal year so you clean your books by September 30th. Well, they said, no, we don't have that money. You can't have that. So that was September 9th. On September 12th, same people came to me and said, what do you need? I had everything I wanted the day after September 11th, but the two days before I couldn't. It's just the way... We shifted gears from one of constraint to we'll buy anything we can to fight this war, to fight terrorism. And so we spent the whole day, with regard to my family, uh, Nadine had mentioned about leaving the house early in the morning. I left the house. Uh, my wife, Marion, she never sees me anyway. I left before she got up. I went, but she couldn't get a hold of me because uh, obviously cell phones were down. Uh, she saw the thing on TV. We had a daughter in California, Amy. She didn't know anything. Our son was, and uh, daughter-in-law and first grandchild were in Richmond. Uh, they weren't aware of anything. And so I was not able to get in touch with them until in the afternoon sometime. And so and my wife knew. She said, I know he's in the south, uh, in the, uh, south, uh, south part of the, part of the Pentagon where the plane hit. I just don't know where he is. And no one can get a hold of me. One saving grace was that since I wasn't in my office, my coworkers went into my, where my, my desk was, grabbed my cell phone, uh, grabbed my keys, grabbed my briefcase, so that when I did meet up with them, I had uh, the ability to communicate when I could communicate. But we stayed there until I guess I was, I had to get back down to the Pentagon to get my car, and that was a goat rope to do that as well because. FBI's in charge of the crime scene. Luckily, uh, because I was assistant deputy commandant in the Marine Corps, I sort of had a badge to get me through the lines, but I had to get my car. I'm driving out Interstate 66 through Arlington, every overpass. And I think this was mentioned before. Uh, candles, flags, people, just out, the outpouring of sorrow, support that happened that night. And then, of course, when I got home, uh, my neighbors were just there waiting for me. And this is 11 o'clock at night, waiting for me with pizza and beer and whatever comfort that they could offer. So a very traumatic day, but one that I didn't have time to dwell on because I was thinking about other things. I was thinking about my responsibilities and to the Marine Corps, to the people that are on our bases and stations, how to protect them and what, what actions we could take in the future, which... Um, and I'll leave it with one other thing, and, and we can go to whatever uh, comments you might have. Is you mentioned Beth Benghazi being the anniversary in 2012. Uh, it's very that's really close to me as well from the standpoint of we were going to put Marines in Benghazi, but we didn't also in Tripoli, but we hadn't opened up 
a detachment yet. And again, I mentioned that one of the responsibilities I had was Marines at Guarded Embassy. So I dealt with the State Department on where we're going to put Marines. Um, what you saw in 13 Hours, that movie, pretty much tells the story. I mean, I was privy to some things that uh, were sent on, on emails from Chris Stevens. That he said, I needed help. And the help wasn't given. My counterparts at the State Department, I'm not going to, you know, drop diamonds on them. It was, a, it, was, it was a financial thing. It was a money thing. They weren't thinking about the other part of it. And so as a result of that, we had a travesty that happened. So post-Benghazi, we have uh, President Obama saying, I want to get, get this fixed. So what you see today, uh, you've seen some uh, in the news about Marine units that are augmenting embassies in, in times of crisis and so on and so forth. We didn't have that capability on December, on September 11th, 2012. We have that capability now because that's one of our actions that we took in the post-Benghazi period, uh, working with Congress to increase the Marines that could go to the embassies and providing a special unit that would provide additional security so that we wouldn't have to put up with something like we had in Benghazi. So that's my story, and I turn it over to you for you for questions. Okay. Um, let me go back over to Kari. Now, you knew a couple people that unfortunately did not make it that day, don't you? Yeah, our squad member, uh, Ian Thompson, who worked for Eurobrokers, um, I think several months later, his wife was given, they had some small part of a remain that matched up to him. Um, Ian was kind of, he was from England, um, larger than life kind of guy with a great big laugh, always a big smile on his face. Uh, it was a huge loss for our squad, our town, um, you know, and because of that, we also actually had a, a somebody else who used to be a member was Todd Ranke, who lived in Summit. Uh, he was a member probably about a good 15, 20 years prior to uh, 9-11. And so I had requested for a piece of the World Trade Center and... Um, I knew at that point the beams were quite heavy, so I asked for about 12 inches of a beam, and uh, we were able to get that. It weighs about 150 pounds, and we've mounted wow. it to a stone in our front lobby for everybody to see, and it has it's in direct line with our flagpole, um, and it says, uh, it's, not how they, it's not how they died that made them heroes, it's how they lived. So we have that in our building for people to come see. I like that. It's yeah. how you lived. Yeah. Nice and then, honor. We, and then we lost a good family friend as well, um, the wife, Janet Gustafs, uh, Janet Hendricks Gustafson. Um, and we spent many Christmases after that 9-11 um, up to a few years ago all together, which was um, really kind of nice. Well, there's many first responders that ended up with illnesses or injuries from helping out that day, from everything that they did. Is there a way that people can try to reach out and support those survivors? Um, there are there are a couple of, you know, um, fundraising type things for the 9-11 events. There's the Tunnels to Towers. There was something I think called Tuesday's Children, 
which was, um, you know, that helped a lot of children who were, um, you know, lost a parent or two parents uh, that day and Tuesday's children because September 11th was a Tuesday. And I know the uh, National September 11th Memorial in New York City um, does a lot of fundraising as well. Okay, because a lot of us don't even think about the fact that here it is 20 years later, and so many people are still suffering for what they did to help that day. Yeah, there's a growing list of all the people who are dying from 9-11 related illnesses. Um, A lot of respiratory issues, different cancers. Most people are part of the World Trade Center Health Registry that are first responders and then who are actually just residents in the area or worked in the area. Um, I can tell you firsthand, I wore a respirator at Ground Zero in in New York and I still came home. I couldn't take a deep breath for about three weeks without coughing up, you know, a a coughing fit that wouldn't stop for a good 15, 20 minutes. Well, and we lost, you know, 3,000 people that day, but quite a few more since. Correct. They're still dying. That's such a sad situation. Raymond, let me ask you something. If the plane that crashed into Pennsylvania wasn't stopped by the brave passengers, what do you think might have happened with that plane? Well, that's a good question. And there's two schools of thought. One was it was going into the Capitol or the White House. And either either way, it's basically cutting the head off the government if it had succeeded. And uh, we would have been in a much worse place. It, like in, it harkens back to that TV series with with uh, was called Designated Survivor, which in case was who who would be who would be running the government if that occurred. Uh, and thank. Goodness, thank goodness for Todd Beamer and his and his and his co-worker co co-passengers who who said let's roll and t- took it down because I, I don't know what would have happened. Probably would have changed our day in history quite a bit more. Absolutely. So for each of you. Do you believe the nation is safer today as a result of the changes that took place after this attack? Or do you think we're vulnerable now, too? Well, uh, let me let me answer that uh, first. Uh, Yeah, we are definitely safer than we were before. We we have done a lot of good things. And again, it's uh, everybody. It's about connecting all the dots and it's about um, bringing uh, disparate agencies together to share information. We're not perfect, but we've done a hell of a lot. I can, I can attest to that we could done a hell of a lot better. We have structurally done better in the sense that we have, from an infrastructure perspective, our construction standards are better to withstand attacks better. Um, where um, our, our vetting processes are better. You know, we didn't have biometrics then. We, we developed the biometrics databases, facial recognition, all of those things that uh, you can track, and it's about tracking people where they've been, where they're from, and, I, and of course, some of the some of the uh, distractions sometimes are is about well, the NSA is listening to all our conversations. Well, I don't think that's the case, but uh, if we didn't have some of these things, 
we would be much more vulnerable. The challenge is, is the balance and how do we achieve the balance for safety versus uh, liberty, freedom, privacy, et cetera. And I don't, I, that's going to be a, a conversation that will always continue. And uh, it, it, it's continued in every conflict about censorship, non-censorship. That was World War II and so on and so forth. And I, I don't, there's no good answer. That's the way, that's the way this country was built. But it's something that uh, we have to continue to look at how best we can outreach both with our allies and identify certain things. The farther away we keep people from the United States in the sense of their ability to, to uh, do to harm, the better off we'll be. And you got to remember, four airlines, four airliners were, came, uh, came and, and uh, attacked this country with uh, individuals that were in this country and hijacked them. We've got to keep them from coming into this country, or at least identifying that threat and arresting them or detaining them or so on and so forth. So it's a, it's a continuous process. The Department of Homeland Security wasn't in existence at the time. Uh, people will badmouth it. But uh, my experience has been that if we didn't have that, uh, we'd be much worse off. We have to have some place that's a mixing bowl, a collation of things. And we didn't have that. We had all these different agencies that didn't even, we're not even the same, same wavelength and a lot of different, per they couldn't talk. In some cases, you talked about first responders, first responders with radios, same different radio frequencies, couldn't talk to each other. This has been a problem in the military. It's been a problem in other places. And we're getting our act together in those types of things. And I think we'll continue to do so. Ari, on the first responder end of it, do you think first responders are more prepared or is there even a way to be more prepared to handle an attack like this? I definitely think they're more prepared. Um, you know, we've had a lot of training um, just to recognize, you know, you know, what might be a, a primary or a secondary hit, you know, and then there's another primary going off and just kind of being aware of your surroundings, questioning a few things, um, I, I definitely think we're more prepared. Okay. Nadine, how did this day basically change or affect your family and the families around you that you know or that you worked with in New York? It, it completely changed. Like I said before, it completely changed everything in our lives, everything in everybody's life. Um, you know, from just something as simple as um, you know, making sure that you say goodbye to everybody before you leave in the morning, trying to make sure that you make the most of the time that you have, trying to um, realize the importance of things over smaller things. Um, but then it also, the way that I believe it changed me, and this has actually been ongoing with things that have happened subsequent, and maybe this, is, this goes back to your last question. Um, I think people are more aware now of their environments around them. There's no more of that naive thought of, oh, something's an accident or something is this. When you go places, and I remember subsequent to that, anytime I would go somewhere, I was a lot more aware of my surroundings. I was a lot more concerned about, you know, when you see a package left, or I was more concerned um, about being in a situation where I want to be able to get out of somewhere. 
um, it, it really changed the mindset of, you know, everything is fine and dandy to a keep an open eye, keep a cautious hand, keep a cautious, you know, just to be cautious around you, but yet still love the time that you have and still embrace the moments that you can share with your family and friends. Because what we realized that day is that could just be a fleeting moment. All those people who said, you know, goodbye to their kids or who didn't say goodbye to their kids that morning and never made it home. So, you know, I think that's, that's how I've changed personally. Um, and the people around me as well, I believe it's the same. You know, my concern now that time has gone on is that people are starting to forget why our mindset was that way. And people are starting to be more lax about things and forgetting why things were put into place. Um, you know, that's the concern that I have. But I still, to this day, I, I look around and I try to make sure that I'm aware of my surroundings and my environment. It's the little things that matter it on really a day-to-day -day basis that we can't really take is. for granted. Nope. Never know when it could be the last. Okay, so this is kind of for all of you. As we know, history can easily repeat itself if you forget about history. So how can we go about making sure that people don't forget about this, especially those that may have been too young to have experienced it, didn't have family that were around it, that sort of thing. So it didn't really affect them on that day. How would you go about making sure that this day isn't ever forgotten? I mean, I think just moments like we're having right now, moments of people talking about it, moments of people sharing their experiences, um, making sure that like, you know, I'm, I definitely make sure that I talk to my kids about it. Um, you know, I talk to their friends about it. Um, you know, just trying to keep the history alive through discussion and through conversation and through awareness. I agree. I think it's just a matter of sharing the stories. And, um, you know, my cousins that lived in Norway came to the United States in uh, the beginning of uh, or the middle of 2019. And they wanted me to take them through the museum so they could understand it from my side and what I had seen. Um, and I think that's just very important that, that they, they have those docents around the museums who can explain what happened. You're not just kind of looking at things on a wall or, or displays, but sharing those stories. Yeah, I, I kind of agree. I agree as well. Uh, one of the things I, I, I hearken back to is when I was growing up, of course, my dad was in World War II, and and uh, and of course, Pearl Harbor was the uh, was the biggest event that occurred uh, for a lot of uh, our generation, and we remembered it so well from the standpoint of our fathers or grandparents served in the service because of Pearl Harbor. We also remember when John F. Kennedy was killed or Martin Luther King was killed. These are um, pivotal moments in our history. But like anything else, the farther away you get from that event, the harder it is to keep that fire burning. And I think as the other uh, 
the other participants have mentioned, it's about education, continuing education, and trying not to politicize the education, but just to tell the just to tell what happened, and not try to, you know, slant it to one way or another. Just tell what happened. We were attacked. Four airplanes were sent to attack us. We had three thousand people dead. We went into we were in a, in a war on terror, which we never thought we would have to do. It's not over. It'll continue. We hope that we have minimized or mitigated whatever can happen in the future because of our learning experience from 9-11. But we can never forget what happened. You bring up a good point. Let's leave the political, politic stuff out of it. And just the fact that we came together as a union, as a nation under this attack. No no uh, politics involved in that. That's right. So, okay. So basically I always do an end of show question. So go to elsaoutsidethebox.com to submit your answer. This week's question is, did the events of September 11th change you or your family? I'd like to thank our guests, Nadine Jeffroy, Raymond Jeffroy, and Kari uh, Fair for sharing their stories and time with us tonight. I really appreciated this. This was awesome. And I would like to thank our sponsor, Logical Choice Realty, your logical choice for all your real estate needs, including buying, selling, investing, and property management services. And I'd like to give uh, just a quick good luck out to Chase Elliott and Team Hendricks in NASCAR's race this weekend at Richmond. Don't forget to think outside the box to reach your next level of success. And may God bless you and may God bless the USA. It's been so great to have you join us this week. Outside the Box with Elsa is broadcast live every Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again soon.